recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Denny of Saturdays. It is Saturday. I'm sorry, my watch says September 31st. It's Saturday, October 1st, 2011. Tonight, I shall cover two of my more concise papers, The Antichrist for Dummies and a Concise Explanation of the Creation of the Jewish People. These are things that every Christian should know and very few do. It's a damn shame. The Antichrist for Dummies. I would love to have that on bookstore shelves. All I would need is the seven pages that I'm about to present and a whole bunch of pictures of all those Jew bastards on Wall Street in the last few presidential administrations on television and in Hollywood. Because they are the Antichrist. Last night while discussing the prophecy of Malachi, it was seen that at the opening of his prophecy, the undue concern which Jacob has for Esau is portrayed in the dialogue. And Yahweh our God explains that he loves Jacob and hates Esau. Therefore, at the end of Malachi's prophecy, we see a promise by God that he will send messengers to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. In other words, a racial awakening is promised. And then the true children of Israel will care for each other rather than Esau. They'll love each other and not be enemies of our God. We now anticipate that awakening, no matter the currently discouraging state of our people. And yes, our God has enemies here on this earth, even to this very day. Not only has he told us in the New Testament and in the Old that he hates Esau, but he also said that he would make war with Amalek, one of the sons of Esau, from generation to generation. Exodus 17, 16. David said in Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22, Do I not hate them, O Yahweh, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? Every Jew that promotes race mixing, miscegenation, sexual perversion, homosexuality, whatever, rises up against God. I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. At the end of the book of Revelation, we see Christ depicted as sitting on a white horse bearing a sword, and leading a large army, upon which all of his enemies are destroyed and cast into the lake of fire. That's a destructive fire. It's not a cleansing fire. It's a destructive fire because death and hell are also cast into it, and you can't clean up death and hell. While this is very poetic imagery, the day shall come that when Christians are caught in league with the enemies of God, that they may well be destroyed along with them. Therefore it is written, Get out of Babylon, lest ye suffer her punishments. Here we shall examine that all along and from the beginning, we have had the simple instructions by which we may easily identify the enemies of our God and how we as Christians are to treat them. 
constantly, constantly we hear stupid questions. To me, they're stupid questions. Like, is Obama the Antichrist? Or, or is so-and-so the Antichrist? Some certain, certain types on, on late-night radio push this image of Maitreya, this mysterious individual who's going to rise up and be the Antichrist. Just fill in the name of the world leader that you want to despise the most, and that world leader can be the Antichrist. Chances are they're all Antichrists. There has always been such speculation over certain historical figures. People anticipate a personal, singular, evil Antichrist to torment us for a period of years, usually seven, before the so-called end of the world. But does the Bible really tell us of such a person? Here we will have a short examination. In the entire Bible, the word Antichrist only appears on five occasions. One of them in the plural. And all of these are in the short epistles of John found at the back of our Bibles. At 1 John 2.18, 1 John 2.22, 1 John 4.3, and 2 John verse 7. They're the only places we'll find the word Antichrist in the Scripture. Here we will see what those passages say. Even in the King James Version of the Bible, because that's what I'm going to quote so that people don't say, oh, he's quoting his own translation. It's evidently, it's perfectly clear in the King James, without my own reading of the Greek. In the first epistle of John, at John 2.18, we read this. Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So we see that there were many antichrists, plural, in John's time. Therefore, to wait for a single future antichrist, rather than investigate to find out who it was that John was talking about, Christians are depriving themselves of great understanding. Further on in his epistle, at verse, verses 22 and 23 of the second chapter, John states this, Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father. And the, in the historical context, of John's writing, the apostle can only be describing the Jews. In first century Judea, people who accepted Christ lost their identity as Judeans. Those people were never, ever called Jews. And they amalgamated themselves with their fellow Greek and Roman Christians, all becoming, as Paul tells us, so often in his epistles, one in Christ. Facilitating this amalgamation, evidently, 
is the fact that at the time, they were all actually alike. They were all racially homogenous. The first century historian Flavius Josephus testifies that the only way by which the Judean men were distinguished from the Greek men is by the fact that the Judean men were circumcised. That is found in the fifth chapter of the 12th book of Josephus's Antiquities. Josephus expressed this idea when he was discussing men exercising in a gymnasium, which in the classical and Hellenistic periods was commonly undertaken in a state of complete nudity. I am going to quote Antiquities 1251, or in the Harvard Globe Library, it's numbered 12241. And I quote, Therefore, they desired his permission, his being Antiochus, to build them a gymnasium at Jerusalem. And when he had given them permission, they also hid the circumcision of their genitals that even when they were naked, they might appear to be Greeks. Accordingly, they abandoned all the customs that belonged to their own country and imitated the practices of the other nations, which were all thoroughly Hellenized by this time. If the Judeans of the time of Josephus were olive-skinned or dark-skinned Arabs, there is no way that they could ever appear to be Greeks. The Greeks at this time were generally blonde and fair. They were very fair-skinned. They had red hair, sandy brown hair, blonde hair, generally. All of the monuments and all of the paintings of Byzantine culture prove that. And all of the descriptions of Greeks found in the poets from the time of Homer down through the time of, of the um, later Byzantine period also proved that. The people that there there are some blondes in Greek in, in Greece left today, but the dark-skinned, olive-skinned people of Greece—they're not Greeks; they're Turks. The Turks occupied Greece for 500 years, from the middle of the 14th century until 1825 when the Greek government was set freed, the genetics of the people will never be loosed from those bands of darkness. The original Greeks would not have been out of place in Scandinavia today. The Apostle John continues in chapter four of his first epistle in verse one, beloved, Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. That's past tense. They've already gone out into the world in John's time. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yahshua Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Yahshua Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is 
that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you heard it would come. And even now, it is already in the world, in the forms of all those people, all those false prophets denying Christ, who were already in the world at John's time. The confession of Christ is properly the profession of the understanding of the fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament Messiah in Christ. Yahweh God, having come to redeem his people, which we see in the scriptures, such as where Thomas addresses Christ as, my Lord and my God, upon realizing that Christ was indeed that Messiah, Thomas understood what the prophecy concerning the Messiah meant. The Jews denied it. The bottom line is this. Is there a God who has efficacy in the world which he created? Or is man his own God, having evolved from nothing, as the Jews really believe, that they are their own Messiah? And the Jews in their Talmud do indeed believe that they are their own Messiah. They believe that they are God. And as the humanists also believe that man must save himself, or that it doesn't really even matter. Humanism is a product of the so-called enlightenment, and it is basically a form of Judaism for non-Jews. The people we now know as Jews have rebelled against God from the beginning and have denied him ever since. And with the enlightenment, which was, to a great degree, a model of Jewish thinking, they taught Christians to do the same, deceptively cloaking their Antichrist doctrines with a thick coat of secularism. The very word secularism is from a Latin word meaning worldly, secularis, and Christians are told to despise what is worldly. So therefore, secularism is also anti-Christian because it's worldly. Now, while Christians await the Antichrist, whom they believe to be some future B3 ruler, often depicted with science fiction quality abilities, the truth is that the Antichrists have walked among us for thousands of years already. Many of them today are still called Jews, and they adhere to that same false religion in which they rejected Christ. Their spirits are not from God, but are rather from their own father, the devil. Those original fallen angels, as they're called in scripture, the original race that rebelled against God and bastardized his creation, which we see in the Enoch literature and in the book of Genesis. And wherever the Jews have gone, they've attempted and still do to bastardize creation everywhere they go. From 1 John 4, it is very clear that there are people who are of the world. Their origin is found in the world. That's because they are a part of that bastardized creation. They are antichrists. Every bastard is an antichrist. Every bastard exists 
contrary to decree to the decrees of God when he created kind after kind and everything after its kind, which we read in Genesis. There are people in the world whose origin is with God. Those people are the children of God. They are the Adamic white Aryan race. There's only two kinds of people in the world, according to the Apostle John. Those of the world and those from of God. If you're not one of the sheep, your origin is with the world. John chapter 8, verse 30. Upon his saying these things, many believed him. Therefore, Yahshua said to those Judeans who believed him, the word is not properly Jew, the word is Judean, everywhere it appears in the Greek. The people who called themselves Jews later on because they kept the religion of Judaism, they like to think that they are, they like us to think that they are the original race of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the word Judea is used in a Roman context. In the New Testament period, Judea was a Roman province, a Roman geopolitical entity. And, according to many ancient sources, it was a polyglot, multicultural province already. But all the people, as we shall find out, had come to accept the religion of the Judeans, which the Greeks named Judaism. The proper word to use in all biblical translation of the New Testament is never Jew. The word in Greek is Eudahius. It's Judean. Therefore, Yahshua said to those Judeans who believe him, if you abide in my word, truly you are my students. And if you... and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They replied to him, We are offspring of Abraham, and to no one have we ever been in bondage. How do you say that we shall be made free? Yahshua replied to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, that he causing wrongdoing is a servant of wrongdoing. Now a servant does not abide in the house forever, a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son shall set you free, you shall certainly be free. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And yes, they were the offspring of Abraham, but they weren't the offspring of Jacob. We will see that shortly. The things which I have seen from the Father I speak, so also to you. The things which you, I'm sorry, so also you, the things which you have heard from your father, you do. They replied and said to him, our father is Abraham. Yahshua says to them, if you were children of Abraham, you would have done the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man, whom has spoken to you the truth, which I have heard from Yahweh. This Abraham has not done. You do the works of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born from a fornication. We have one father, Yahweh. 
Yahshua said to them, If Yahweh was your father, you would have loved me. For I have come from of Yahweh and am here. I have not come by myself, but he has sent me. For what reason do you not perceive my speech? Because you are not able to hear my word. You are the sons of a father, the devil, or the false accuser. And you wish to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. The only murderer at the beginning was Cain. And did not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own devices because he is a liar and the father of it. Now, because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Who from among you censures me concerning wrongdoing? I speak the truth. If I speak the truth, for what reason do you not believe me? He who is from, he who is from of Yahweh hears the words of Yahweh. For this reason, you do not hear, because you are not from of Yahweh. The word of God cannot reside in bastards. Having just discussed the book of Malachi on last night's program, again I will repeat parts of the first two chapters where Yahweh, God, reproaches the priests through the prophet. Malachi 1.1 The burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith Yahweh, Yet you say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith Yahweh, Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage, waste for the dragons of the wilderness, otherwise known as the Nabataean Arabs. Malachi 2.1 and now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith Yahweh of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yeah, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed. Malachi's writing this circa 500 BC and spread dung upon your faces even the dung of your solemn feasts and one shall take you away with it and you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you that my covenant might be with Levi saith Yahweh of hosts this being a dialogue the priest then responded in Malachi 2.10 part of the response is at Malachi 2.10 have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Here in John 8, they claim we have one Father, even God. John 8 is the result of the prophecy in Malachi chapters 1 and 2. Malachi chapter 2, Yahweh tells the priests, those who despise his name, I will corrupt your seed. In Malachi chapter 2, God rejects the prophecies of these priests because, as he tells them, my covenant 
is with Levi. Evidently, some of the priests, and this is a prophecy, so it's talking about the future. It's an allegory for future times. Evidently, some of these priests are not Levi, and the law says that all the priests should be Levi. If the priests aren't Levi, who are they? Why does Malachi record God as saying, I love Jacob and I hated Esau? What we see in John 8 is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi. Many of the priests of the time of Christ were indeed this very corrupted seed, the children of Esau and other Canaanites who became integrated into the kingdom of Judea and who had attained positions of power from the time of Herod, the Edomite king. And Josephus records all of this. The Edomites could indeed claim Abraham for a father, but they were nevertheless bastards. And God pronounced his hatred for them. Paul repeats this very same explanation and these same words found in Malachi in Romans chapter 9. And here, I will repeat some of Paul's statements, which he made there from my own translation, because the King James simply butchers parts of it. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth among the anointed, I lie not my conscience bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit, that grief for me is great and distress incessant in my heart, for I have prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed, meaning the people of the body of Christ, for the brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh. Those who are Israelites, whose is the position of sons, Paul saying he only cares for his kinsmen in regards to the flesh, those who are Israelites whose is the position of sons and the honor and the covenants, they only belong to Israel, and the legislation, the law of God, and the service and the promises, the promises of God are only belonging to the children, the seed, according to the flesh of Israel. Whose are the fathers, and of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh, being overall blessed of Yahweh for the ages? Only Israelites need apply. Truly, not, however, that the word of Yahweh has failed, since not all of those who are from Israel are those of Israel. We have the geographical location, and we have the actual race of people. Nor because they are all offspring of Abraham, are they all children? But in Isaac will your offspring be called. That is to say, the children of the flesh, these are not the children of Yahweh, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. Don't take that out of context. In verses 1 through 4, Paul expresses concern only for his kinsmen according to the flesh. These two ideas do not conflict, but rather are complementary it is the flesh and the promise. You must be a child of Abraham and a child of the promise because Paul is only considering here 
the children of Abraham. So where he says, that is to say, the children of the flesh, these are not the children of Yahweh. He means not all of the children of Abraham are of the, are of the children of Yahweh. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Yahweh does only recognize the true children of Jacob. Deuteronomy 14.1, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. He never said that of any other of the Adamic people, never mind the other races. He only said that to the children of Israel out of the entire white race. The essence of the promise is that it come to the physical seed of Abraham through Jacob. Verse 9, indeed, this word of promise, at the appointed time I will come and there will be a son for Sarah. And not only, but Rebekah also had conceived from one, meaning one promise, by Isaac, our father. Then, not yet having been born, nor having performed any good or evil, that the purpose of Yahweh concerning the chosen endures, not from rituals, but from the calling. To her, to her it was said, the elder will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, and Esau I hated. So we see in Romans 9 that Paul only cares about his kinsmen according to the flesh, and he goes on to compare Jacob and Esau. Now what, way, now what may we say? Injustice is with Yahweh? Certainly not. Then in response to the scoffers, Paul says in verse 20, but rather, O oh man, who are you to be arguing against Yahweh? Will the figure say to its fabricator, why did you make me this way? Or does the potter not have authority over the clay to make from out of the same lump, meaning the womb of Rebekah, one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? God knew in advance that Esau would be a race mixer. In Hebrews 12:16, Paul calls Esau a fornicator, that is, a race mixer, as Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And therefore, God expressed his hatred for Esau from the beginning. All of this serves for our example. So we see that the true Judeans are Israelites and vessels for honor descendants of Jacob, while those Judeans who were irretrievably opposed to Christ are Edomites. They were the vessels for dishonor, which Paul goes on in Romans verse 20, chapter 9, verse 22, Paul goes on to call vessels of wrath furnished for destruction. That is the division of John chapter 8. They claim to be Abraham's children, and Christ admitted that they were, but they were Edomites, <laughs> that they weren't the children of Jacob. John speaks of these antichrists further at 1 John chapter 5, verse 10, 
where he says, He that believes in the Son of God has witness in himself. He that believes not God made him a liar, because he believes not the record that God gave of his Son. The Jews, the Edomite Judeans, if I wanted to call them properly, by rejecting Jesus Christ, they esteem God to be a liar, while hypocritically they claim to be the people of God. They esteem God to be a liar by rejecting all of the many hundreds of Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ, some of them very explicit and practically undeniable, including the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, which precisely dates his coming. It was not by chance that the apostles were recorded as having said at 1 John 41, we have found the Messiah. They were looking for him. Or that the woman at the well, as it is recorded in John chapter 4, said, quote, I know that Messiah comes who is called Christ. When he should come, he shall announce to us all things. These people expected this to happen, as the Magi in Matthew, as um, Zechariah and Simon and Anna the prophetess were all portrayed in Luke, and many others also who are described in the New Testament writings. They expected a Messiah because they understood the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. They knew that the time was near. The Jews, the Edomite Judeans, remember when the Magi came to Jerusalem, Herod feared, and all Jerusalem with him feared. They should have been gleeful if they were truly children of God. The Jews have all along rejected the very book which they claim is their own. And anyone today who is cognizant of the nature of Jewish treachery should see that they have followed this same pattern on many more recent occasions. Today, for instance, they claim to be Americans. They piss all over the Constitution. While they claim to be Americans, they destroy America. Ditto for first century Judea. In John's second epistle, the apostle reinforces the instruction that those who deny Yahshua Christ are antichrists, at verse 7, where he says, For many deceivers are entered, past tense, into the world, who confess not that Yahshua Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So we see that the Jews are liars, the Jews are deceivers. We know that from experience. And the Jews are antichrists. In the same epistle at verse 9, John says, Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. The Jew cannot have communion or communication with God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. Christ says, nobody gets to the Father except through me. 
John proceeds to instruct his readers as to how to treat those who reject Christ at verses 10 and 11, where he says, If there come anyone to you and brings not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. To bid Godspeed is archaic language, meaning simply to greet someone. So it is evident that Christians certainly should not keep company with the Jews, nor even so much as greet them. And this is a Christian admonition. It is quite clear that Christians are only expected to act Christian towards other Christians, period. Paul makes a similar statement to 2 John 9 through 11 while discussing sound Christian doctrine in 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, where he says, and I'll read the King James, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, things that Jews love, where, whereof cometh strife, envy, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. And so Christians, if they truly believe their Bibles, must reject Jews who have themselves been the Antichrists all along. Christians must, of course, also reject anyone else who denies the Christ. It is only when we stop accepting evil that we ourselves as a people could ever be healed. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, the Jews, and he will flee from you. Now we shall discuss some of the historical evidence and other evidence from the Bible, proving that the modern-day Jews are not the Israelites. They are indeed the Edomites and Canaanites of the Old Testament. A concise explanation of the creation of the Jewish people. The Old Testament accounts found in the book of Genesis demonstrate that there was a rivalry between Jacob and Esau. Esau, it is, always, it is also clear, was a race mixer who had taken wives of the Canaanites and the Ishmaelites. What I don't have in this paper is a background on the Canaanites and the Ishmaelites and why it was important to stay away from them. I didn't count it important for this paper. But briefly, the Canaanites, of course, were cursed in Genesis chapter 9. And all of the descendants of Noah would have known this, at least when it happened. It can be pretty much assured that Canaan would have found a hard time having a wife from the sons of Shem or the other sons of Ham or the sons of Jephthah. Nevertheless, 
when Abraham is sent from the land of Haran, which is actually in Padan Aram, in far northern Syria, and he's sent into the land of Canaan, which is the Levant, the land of the coast of Palestine, we find there all the tribes of the Canaanites. Some of them, the Hittites to the north, were about to become a very great empire because they had subjected their neighbors and came to rule over the known world. That's probably why Abraham was sent south, would be my guess, would be to get away from that Hittite domination to some degree. Palestine was part of the Hittite empire, but it was really the outskirts of the Hittite empire and the frontier. For a time, until the Hittite empire declined in the years just before the Exodus. And that can be demonstrated through archaeology. The Canaanites in the Levant, which is the archaeological name for Palestine, basically, what we know today is um, Israel and Jordan and Syria. The Canaanites of the Levant, they're mingled with several other races. And this is described in the later half of Genesis chapter 15. Among those races are the Kenites and the Rephaims. And the Kenites are the descendants of Cain. And the Rephaim are the fallen ones, that they are the giants. That's what the word means. The sons of Rapha, the sons of the giant. We see that where in, um, in 1 Chronicles, the family of Goliath, who is one of the Rapha, is described. And we're told that they were sons of the giant explicitly. They were Rephaim. So this is consistent throughout the scripture that these people existed. We see today in, in, um, in plain sight, anybody who knows the Jewish people really well, that the Jewish people have genes, recessive genes, that sometimes cause either dwarfism or gigantism. And I've seen actual pictures of very short Jewish parents with very, very large offspring. I mean like seven-foot-tall offspring. I'm persuaded that men like Andre the Giant are descendants of the Rephaim. And so are some of the dwarfs. Dwarfism seems to have been among the Hittites, the ancient Hittites, in the oldest times, and is reflected in a lot of the inscriptions that were left behind in the Levant. So we see that the children of Cain and the children of the Rephaim, of which Goliath was one, he wasn't really a Philistine by race, he was only a mercenary in a Philistine army. And we have in the, in the scripture, we have the valley of the Rephaim in the land of Philistia, where they had chariots of iron, and the, the, the Israelites invading with Joshua couldn't destroy them. They were afraid of them. So we see that the Canaanites mingled in with both the Kenites, the children of Cain, the children, the son of the devil, 
and with the Rethane. And they amalgamated themselves into one. I have other descriptions for it, but for now I'll just call it one multicultural mass, so to speak. One genetic cesspool might be a better description. And that's Genesis chapter 15, and it's also evident in the book of Joshua and the book of Judges and other Old Testament scriptures. That is how Joshua Christ tells the Edomites that they are the children of the devil in John chapter 8. That is how Joshua Christ tells those same people, tells those same Pharisees and priests in Jerusalem that upon their race comes all the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, from A to Z. The only person that could be responsible for the blood of Abel is Cain. And in the eyes of God, and in the traditions of our fathers in the Old Testament, the children were always responsible for the sins of the father. The children always suffered because of the sins of the father. A concise explanation of the creation of the Jewish people. Genesis, chapter 26, verses 34 and 35. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judas, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite. The Hittites were a branch of the Canaanites, the sons of Heth. And Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind to Isaac, to, to Isaac and to Rebekah. Imagine that. Isaac and Rebekah were racists. So should we be. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth, the Hittite. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these, which are daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? And Isaac called Jacob. The Hittite empire would have been at its peak at the time of Isaac, let me say. Genesis 28.1, And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael, the tribe, and took unto the wives which he had with Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth, to be his wife. Let me say that Nebaioth seems to be the name from which the Nabataean Arabs were later named. Even after Esau saw that his father was disturbed by his Canaanite wives, he still could not do right, because Ishmael was driven off and excluded from the covenants by Abraham and by Sarah, his grandparents. The rivalry between the brothers later turned into a national enmity among their descendants. And the Edomites were eventually even enslaved by the Israelites, 1 Chronicles chapter 18. 
and they later revolted to Chronicles chapter 21, so they were enslaved for a long time to the Israelites. When the Chaldeans finally took Jerusalem and destroyed the city, 585 B.C., we find that the Edomites were in league with them, and the Edomites are blamed for the destruction of the first temple. Psalm 137, verses 7 through 9. Remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundations thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who ought to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewards you as you have served us. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes thy little ones against the stones. That's a psalm of retribution against the Edomites, a retribution yet to be fulfilled. 1 Ezra, chapter 4, verse 45. Thou also hast vowed to build up the temple, which the Edomites burned when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees. So we see that the Edomites are credited in the Bible on two occasions with the destruction of the temple when the Babylonians took Jerusalem. After the Exodus, when the Israelites moved into the land of Canaan, they were, destruct- they were instructed to destroy all of the Canaanite peoples. They failed to do this. And they were warned that harm would later come to them because of this failure. I will read one scripture, even though there are three at least, elucidating this. Numbers chapter 33, verses 55 and 56, where it says, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, meaning the Canaanites, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes, and they are to this day, and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. It is evident that in both Jerusalem and elsewhere, the later Israelites did indeed have a problem with infiltration and race mixing by the Canaanite tribes. Jeremiah 2 verses 13 and 21 through 23, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the, into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet Thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh. How can you say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Baalim, the false fertility gods of the Canaanites. This was one of the chief reasons, as we are told in Numbers, for the later chastisement and removal of the Israelites. As we just saw in Numbers that Yahweh said, I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. They wouldn't remove the Canaanites, so Yahweh removed them. 
In the prophecy of Amos, chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, we read this. Behold, the eyes of Yahweh God are upon the sinful kingdom, meaning Israel, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. That's the old Israel. Saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith Yahweh. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. There are a lot of prophecies besides this one in play. However, this sifting happened when the Israelites were taken away forcibly into the lands of the Persians, the Assyrians, and the Medes. Then there was a promise, there were many promises of regathering. And eventually, many of those same people migrated northwards, where they were later known as the Chimerians and the Sake, the Chimerians and the Scythians of history, the Germanic people. The prophecy found in Ezekiel chapters 35 and 36 discussed the fact that the Edomites had moved into the lands of Israel and Judah after the removal of the Israelites by the Assyrians and the Chaldeans. And I will quote Ezekiel chapter 35, verses 1 to 11, momentarily. We have already seen that during the destruction of Jerusalem, the Edomites were in league with the Babylonians and that it was the Edomites who tore down the original temple. There are Assyrian inscriptions extant from this very time which mention Edom as a nation. But the Assyrian inscriptions describing the deportations of Israel, which the Assyrians called the Bit Kumria, Omri land or the house of Omri, and those inscriptions are quite substantial, but they do not mention Edom in such a context. The Nabataeans are also mentioned in these inscriptions, but they're not mentioned as being deported either. All of these circumstances are certainly historical. The inscriptions tell us that we can be, we can rest assured in all of these respects that our Bibles are true albeit we see these events only dimly evident outside of the Bible and only through Assyrian inscriptions. There are no linear histories in existence from this period. We only have archaeology, but the archaeology is plentiful. Genesis chapter 32, verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother, unto the land of Seir. So we see that Esau, in the Old Testament, went to live in Mount Seir, the country of Edom. Seir became the country of Esau's descendants and of Esau himself, Genesis 32.3. In Genesis 14.6, we see that the Horites, a Canaanite tribe, had dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau went to live, in one point it's called Mount Horus in Genesis, the land of the Horites. 
Esau went to live in Mount Seir, where the Horites dwelt. This is where Esau settled, evidently among the relations, the relations of his Canaanite wives. The biblical Horites are well known from archaeology, where in archaeology journals, they are called the Hurrians. The only difference being the ending. Ezekiel 35, 1-11 state this. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir, and this would be the home of the Edomites, as we see in Genesis 32.3. Set thy face against Mount Seir and prophecy against it, and say unto it, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I will stretch out my hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate. I will lay thy cities waste, and thou shalt be desolate, and thou shalt know that I am Yahweh, because thou hast had a perpetual hatred and has shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity, in the time that their iniquity had an end. Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh God, I will prepare thee unto blood, and blood shall pursue thee, sith or sense, thou hast not hated blood, even blood shall pursue thee. Thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from it him that passes out and him that returns. In other words, the merchants. And I will make Mount Seir most desolate and cut off him that passes out and him that returns. And I will fill his mountains with his slain men. In thy hills and in thy valleys and in all thy rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. I will make thee perpetual desolations and thy city shall not return. And ye shall know that I am Yahweh. You know, we see this land in its desolate form. And even though there was always a desert in Arabia, much of the land was always a hell of a lot more fertile than it is these last many centuries, these last couple of thousand years. In fact, the Romans called it Arabia Felix which means happy Arabia. Seir and many of the cities that we know today to be in southern Jordan or the, the Negev, the southern part of Israel, they were bountiful at one time. There were great flocks at one time. They grew all their own food at one time. Today, except without massive irrigation, they are just a wasteland. Yahweh said, and much of them are a wasteland even with immigration, Yahweh said he would make them desolate, and desolate they became indeed. But at one time, these lands were well populated and a lot more bountiful than we know them from our experience. We picture hot, sandy wastelands. They were not like that three and four thousand years ago. They were a lot more fertile than they are in our experience. And the Bible and the other inscriptions and the histories demonstrate that. They had to be. Where it says 
in Ezekiel 35.10. These two nations and these two countries shall be mine. These words are being attributed to the Edomites of Mount Seir. It has to describe the historical fact that the Edomites indeed moved northwards into the ancient lands of Israel and Judah following the Babylonian destruction and deportations of the last of the major cities of the Israelites, especially Jerusalem. And they, indeed they did, as can be told from the later Persian, Greek, and Roman histories, as we have already seen here, the theme of the prophecy found in Malachi chapters 1 and 2 is that Jacob is distinguished from Esau and that the sacrifices of the priests are no longer acceptable because the covenant is with Levi. With this, Malachi fully infers that there were, or rather would be, priests who should not have held the office. In the biblical records, after the Assyrian and Chaldean deportations of the Israelites, concerning the return of nearly 42,000 or so Israelites to Jerusalem, we have only the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and a few of the minor prophets, Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah. These books are focused upon the activities in Jerusalem, which occurred over a very short period of time actually about 60 or 70 years. And concerning the rest of the country, well, concerning the time from approximately 455 all the way down to 3 BC when Christ is born, in the Bible, we have nothing. It is evident in Ezra and Nehemiah that these returning Judeans did struggle to maintain their race and keep themselves separate from the Canaanites and the Edomites in the neighboring districts, and the Samaritans and other people. Yet this attitude did not prevail, and with the works of the first century Judean historian Flavius Josephus, and with the apocryphal book, which is a valid history book and should be in our Bibles, known as 1 Maccabees, along with profane historical sources such as Strabo, we can fill in much of the gaps between the Testaments. Let me say, too, that the deportations of the ancient Assyrians, it is a fact of history. Many inscriptions have been found which even enumerate how many Israelites were taken from Palestine at various times. And the Assyrians recorded that they took over well over 200,000 people from Judah and conquered 46 fenced cities of Judah outside of Jerusalem. The Assyrians did record that. The Assyrians did leave an inscription that we found of 25 or 26,000 people being taken from the city Samaria, the capital city of Ephraim. Now the Assyrians took away Israelites from many more places in the ancient land of Israel, but we don't have all the inscriptions. We do have many of them. It is a fact of history that has happened. The old kingdom of Israel did exist, and the Edomites did move into it, and we see that in profane or secular historical records, as well as in the Bible.
From Greek and Roman records, we can see that from the Hellenistic period, all of the southern portions of the land once known as Judah and Israel were called Edomia after the Edomites of the Bible. Strabo, the early first century Greek geographer, attests that the Edomians were mixed up with the Judeans and that they shared in the same customs with them. That will be found in several citations from Strabo's geography, book 16. From Josephus, it can be determined that shortly before 130 BC, the reigning Hasmonean high priest, the Hasmonean dynasty were also called the Maccabees, who had all the authority of the king, whose name was John Hyrcanus, he decided to conquer all of the surrounding cities of ancient Israel, which at that time were inhabited by Edomites and Canaanites, and to either convert them to the religion of Judea, which was first called what we would say Judaism by the Greeks, or to let them leave the land or be slain. Josephus states that from this point, these Edomites became, quote-unquote, none other than Judeans. Therefore, with certainty, we see the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 35, that the Edomites had come into the land of Israel and Judah and made it theirs. The Maccabees, and, and let me say that Maccabee was a name given to the Hasmonean dynasty of high priests, who ruled Jerusalem from about 150 B.C. down to about 36 B.C., when the last of them was slain by Herod the Edomite. Josephus writes at Antiquities, Book 13, about the conquests of John Hyrcanus in Palestine, and I quote 13, chapter 9, verse 1, or 13 verses or lines 257 through 258 in some numbering systems. Hyrcanus also took Dora and Marissa, cities of Edomia, and subdued all the Edomians and permitted them to stay in that country if they would submit to circumcision and make use of the laws of the Judeans. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the right of circumcision and of the rest of the Judean ways of living. At which time, therefore, this befell them that they were hereafter considered to be Judeans. Josephus said these things while he described many of the other exploits of Hyrcanus who also made conquests in Syria. It is fully evident that from this time, approximately 130 BC, the Edomites were integrated into Judea. Josephus says, from here on, they were to be considered as Judeans. There are many other proofs of this very thing in Josephus and in other books, other profane histories. Judea, from 130 B.C. forward, 
was a multicultural polyglot of a nation. The first Herod, an Edomian by race, as Josephus actually attests at least four times, who usurped power from the Maccabees, bribed the Romans for the kingship, and from that time used the temple priesthood at Jerusalem as a political tool. Both Josephus and the ecclesiastical historian Eusebius admit that many of the priests of this time forward were not worthy of the distinction under the former Levitical traditions. They were from outside the tribe of Levi. And the veracity of Malachi's prophecy becomes quite clear with the historical testimony. The usurpation of the political control, I'm sorry, the usurpation of political control in Jerusalem is the primary reason for all of the division recorded in the New Testament. In both Romans 16.20 and in the second chapter of his second epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul alludes to the temple priesthood as Satan, which means the adversary. And this is also attested to in Revelation 2.9 and in Revelation 3.9. Yahshua Christ informs the priests and the other leaders in many places that they are the children of the adversary. Luke eleven forty seven through 51, he tells them that their race is responsible for the blood of Abel and all the prophets to Zechariah. Wherever we see prophets and priests dying in the Old Testament, we see them dying at the hands of Canaanites, for the most part, Doug the Edomite, Jezebel. Where we see Abel himself, his blood can only be caused by Cain. Only Cain could be responsible for the blood of Abel. Therefore, the priests which Christ is talking to, they are the children of Cain. They have to be. We saw the testimony in John chapter 8. In John chapter 10, verse 26, Christ tells the Judeans, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. The Catholic Church and its Protestant daughters have told us for centuries that the Jews were not his sheep because they didn't believe him. That is a lie. They have taken the words of Christ and reversed them. It's a trick. They weren't his sheep in the first place. Christ said, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. They were not Israelites. They were Edomites. It's that simple. Paul makes a clear distinction, as we have seen, between Israelites of Judea and the Edomites of Judea in Romans chapter 9. It can be shown from the New Testament that many of the Israelites converted to Christianity during the ensuing years. It can be shown from Paul's epistles that when Judeans accepted Christianity, they lost entirely their identity as Judeans. The Edomites never 
converted to Christianity, and they never, well, some of them did in, in the 14th and 15th centuries, they never converted at this time. They clung to their traditions, which were later recorded in the Talmud. The Talmud has absolutely no authentic connection to the ancient Hebrew religion. Today, these people and all of their many proselytes along the way and all of the races that they interbred with, they are the people known as Jews. Paul writes about the mystery of lawlessness in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'd like to read it real quick. From verse 1, I'll probably read too much, right? Now we ask you, brethren, concerning the presence of our Prince Yahshua Christ and our gathering to him, that you not be quickly shaken from this purpose. And you should not be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as if by us, as though the day of the Prince, meaning the end of the world, meaning the, the time of judgment, is present. You should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come first. Paul's saying the apostasy already happened. A lot of Judeo-Christians and some Christian identity pastors, who I will leave unnamed, read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as some future prophecy. But Paul said in the past tense, because if apostasy had not come first, and the man of lawlessness then revealed Christ revealed, he exposed the Judeans as Edomite intruders. The son of destruction, he who is, present tense, not future, he who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. So he is seated, present tense again, in Paul's time. Paul is writing this in the fourth decade or perhaps the fifth decade of the first century, before the destruction of the temple, of the last temple. And so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a God. Do you not remember that yet being with you, I had told these things to you. And you know that that which now prevails for him to be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already operating, he prevailing only presently until he should be out of the way, and then will the lawless be revealed, whom Prince Joshua will destroy with the breath of his mouth and abolish at the manifestation of his presence. So Paul has said that the man of lawlessness was already revealed, and Paul has said that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Paul said both things, and this is very cryptic language. However, look at our history. Joshua Christ revealed the illegitimacy of those who said they were Jews and are not. And after 2,000 years, most of our people still don't get it. So Paul says that he will be revealed in his time. He was already revealed, and it was yet to be revealed. Why? How could both circumstances be true? That's my, my translation of 2 Thessalonians, but 
if you check the tenses of the Greek verbs, you will find that my translation is correct. The only way that could happen is if Christ told us plainly who they were, and he did. But our people didn't get it. And they didn't. Maybe they'll get it soon. And then the second half of Paul's statement here will be manifested. However, that doesn't mean that the Antichrist is in the future. The Antichrist is the Jew who has been with us all along. The Jew sat in the temple in the first century and imagined that he was God. Today, the Jew sits in all of our temples everywhere. The temples in our universities, the temples in our banking houses, the temples in our law courts. The Jew occupies all the temples in our state capitals and imagines himself that he is God. The Jew hasn't changed in 2,000 years. His destruction is coming. Okay. I'd like to take some calls if anybody has any questions, if anybody has anything they want to say. I meant to um, announce this at the beginning of the program, and I sort of forgot. I think I talked about it before we started the show. But, but um, if anybody wants to call in, now is your opportunity to do it. I was a little longer than I thought in my presentation. This paper I should probably rewrite. I tried to keep them concise. It's, um, Cheryl, please let Victor talk. If I wanted to write this paper completely, I would never be finished with it. It's supposed to be an overview. That's why I called it a concise history of the creation of the Jewish people. It could probably be a thousand-page book. The Jews today, of course, have mixed themselves with the Arabs. They've mixed themselves with the Khazars. They've mixed themselves with many white people, they've mixed themselves with every other race. But that still doesn't mean that they didn't originally descend from the Canaanites and Edomites of the Old Testament, and ultimately from Cain himself. So that in Genesis 3.15, where it says, where God says to the serpent that there would be perpetual enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we see that manifested in the second millennium BC with the children of Esau. With Esau and Jacob, and and Esau marries into Canaanites, and, and his children, his race, are permanently opposed to his own brother. And we see that all down through history between the Edomite and the other Canaanite races of history and the Adamic white races. And they've consumed many of our lands and many of our nations. And now they're in, in, in the high places in all of our nations. And most Christians are still worshiping the enemies of God. And that is why Malachi opens up with the words, where Yahweh tells Jacob that he loved Jacob, and the Israelites respond, well, what about Esau? Is he not Jacob's brother? 
And Yahweh explained, well, I hated Esau. Because it was Jacob and Esau who Yahweh chose to carry on the enmity between the children of the serpent and the children of the woman, the children of Adam. And that is the theme of all history. From 7,000 years ago. Hello, Victor. I see Nestor is on the call also. Hello, Nestor. Hi, Hello, Bill. Um, I have a, uh, I need, if you could help me with a little chronological. In 2 sure. Kings 17, five, I'm sorry. Shall I continue? Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Um, I started learning about all this because uh, I read in 2 Kings some information a while back. Se- uh, 2 Kings 17.5, it talks about Shalamanzer attacking the cities of Samaria. It was a three-year bout, something like that. All the Israelites were taken into captivity, and it tells you where they were taken. And then if you go down to uh, 2 Kings 17.24, it says that the king of Syria took the people who were living in Babylon Katha, uh, Abba, Hamla, and then Sepharvim. Um, I read Kostler's work, and this is where I'm sort of kind of, I just need a little chronological help. Kagan Boulan, when he decided that he wanted to bring his people out of the barbarianism or whatever he called it, he put out a decree, you know, he wanted to hear what religion would be the best for his people. So he invited Islam, uh, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. Now, Judaism was already there. So chronologically, Kagan Bulan or the Khazarian Empire, where does this all fall in? Because Judaism was already establishing itself in Khazaria. Then you'll see that in the New Testament, Yeshua says to his disciples to go out and spread the word to to the nations of, of Israel, Israelites, but don't go into Samaria because apparently the, the, the Sepharvim or the Jews, they were already there. Don't go in there. Don't waste your time, I'm assuming. So well, well, that's an assumption. It's, it's not, if you think about the, the mission of the Christ, right? Mm-hmm. In Samaria, there are some alien people. Don't get me wrong. There are some people with the Canaanites. The woman at the well was definitely an Israelite. Christ never argued with her. She said that our father Jacob dug this well. Christ never told her, well, Jacob's not your father. Mm-hmm. He accepted her words. Now, it's clear that when the Assyrians took the Israelites out of the land, that they, there were those who were spared from the sword, and there were lo- those poor of the land who were left behind. They didn't clear out every single Israelite from the land. There were some pockets of Israelites left, I'm certain, in diverse places. And it's hard for an army even to go into a land and get everybody, right? Because people are mobile, right? They move. But they see armies coming for miles, and they, but they hightail it out of there, right? But, well, um... Even though tens and tens of thousands of Israelites were removed, it's absolutely certain from the inscriptions, from the historical accounts, from the biblical accounts, that not every last one was taken. There were some Israelites left behind. Now, there were also many other people. I think I counted at one time 19 other tribes who were brought into 
the, the, um, the land of Samaria, which was the ancient land of Ephraim and Manasseh, right? Mm-hmm. That they were brought into their front by the Assyrians. But if you look at all the places the Assyrians held rule, even though we don't know who some of those people are, it, it's clear that they all had to be um, Adamic people, white Adamic people when they were brought in because the Assyrians only ruled over white Adamic people. Yes, there were some Kenites. Yes, there were Canaanites. They were always there. But the Assyrians only ruled over white tribes. Well, who's the Sepharavim? Who, who, like I said, what, what, we can't okay. identify okay, okay. every one of those tribes. It, it's not possible. But they only came from lands where white people lived. You now, I know that a lot of people want to connect Sepharvim, the Sepharvim to the Sephardics. And I'm not sure if that's an honest connection or not. I would need to study more. I have looked at it before, but I really can't remember my conclusions right now. Okay. Now, the Khazars, the Khazars, I believe, were originally a white tribe that lived near the Caspian Sea. And it was a white area at the time. But we had the Turks who were moving from the east. And they migrated into the land of the Khazars. By the second or third century, they had reached the Caspian Sea, according to um, the profane, more, more recent profane historians and, and archaeologists. Now, now, the Turks apparently derived from a people called the Uyghurs. And I could spell that better than I could say it, right? It's U-I-G-H-U-R-S. And they were an oriental mongoloid people who probably had a lot of what we might consider oriental or Chinese blood. Now the Uyghurs had moved into this region and at the same time virtually Christianity was catching on in Rome. In the beginning of the fourth century, we had the Council of Nicaea. We had the Edicts of Constantine. We had later Edicts, of Constantinus, his son. We then had edicts by Theodosius I and Theodosius II, and then finally, ultimately, by Justinian. All of these edicts basically excoriated the Jews from Christian Byzantine society. And many Jews went to Arabia. The next thing you know, we have Islam, right? Not too much, mm. long, not too much later, right? Not, right. Too, not too long after, after these edicts, we have Islam up here, and I believe that Islam is a Jewish invention to consolidate the Arab masses who could never be Christians. There's no attempt to convert them to Christianity. To consolidate them against the Christian world. I think that Islam is a Jewish invention to consolidate the mingled masses against the Christian world. That's my personal belief, right? It, it is um, evident in the histories of Alzog and Gibbon, that Muhammad had Jewish blood as well as Jewish connections. Okay, well, while the Jews are being excoriated from Christian society, Jews begin to leave the Byzantine Empire, and many of them travel up into the land of Khazaria. They go to Parthia, where, where the Khazars are a dominant tribe at the time. They go to Arabia. And we have the establishment, the conversion of the Khazars to Judaism around the um, 6th century BC, maybe the 7th, 
And, and until the 9th or 10th century, and the invasions of the Mongols, which drove these Jewish Khazars west, we had a great Khazar-Jewish-Turkic polyglot trading empire. Okay. So the, the so then this was what was the, the the time frame that you just said? It was BC. Well, well, no, the Khazars couldn't have been converted to Judaism until six, at least it's six hundred days. Oh yeah, way yeah, way after. Okay, now I understand how the Judaism got up into that place. Oh uh, right, got up into Khazaria. Right. Okay, because then Harkanus. He did his conversion before Kazaria. Oh, he, 700 years before, right. There's okay. no relation in history to the conversion of Khazars. And, yet, you know, the Edomites that went into Kazaria, we're talking 600 years after Christ, maybe. 500 years, 600 years in there. So then, uh, I don't have the exact numbers in my head, right? The, the definitive history is not in Kosler. Uh, okay, I've read the definitive history. It's been a while. The definitive history is in the works of a Jew called The History of the Jews by a Jewish historian. And, and Jewish historian to me is an oxymoron because all Jews are liars, but yeah. some of them are liars less than others, right? Named Heinrich Gretz, which was written in the middle of the 18th, 1800s, the middle of the 19th century. I have a copy of it upstairs, and, and it, it gives a pretty lengthy, in-depth description of the conversion of the Khazars, and I'm sure that that was Kosler's source, right, or at least his primary source. I wouldn't know. I, it, it, it was uh, regardless of the source. It, that was the beginning of my education through, you know, Yahweh opened up the door through all these different readings, and uh, whether it's a little or a lot. The point is now I know and I understand. Just trying to get the finites. Sometimes when we read this stuff in the Old Testament, like when I saw the Savarvim, that was the that was the beginning of well, who are these people? And then I sort of kind of hear it from Kostler, and then I started reading it from other places. You know, you there's a there's an expression the devil will tell a thousand truths just to get one lie in. Well, so, right, absolutely, that's that's true. <laughs> so anyway, but we have to be careful about the lies and. Well, oh, well sure, yeah, sure. the the um the Edomite conversion of the Khazars didn't happen until at least the sixth century AD. Okay, you answered my question. Thank you. And Thank keep, you. And oh, by the way, at the beginning of the program, you were talking about people not wanting to read; they'd rather hear. And I type, I said, keep writing, keep writing. Um, what's real oh, is be able to go on to Christagena and play, download the written, your document, and listen to it at the same time. It's kind of like a double portion. Right. I didn't do it this week, but it's it's a lot of work, too. And I'm, I'm, I I took the um, most of the opportunity of not writing out notes for these programs so that I could um, work on, on getting my Revelation book together, right, because I'm really trying to do that. All righty, Nevertheless, I'll be back next week with Mark, and, and I'll write out my commentary on Mark, just like I've been doing with Matthew. With Matthew, yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. I appreciate your work. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too, man. Goodbye. Hello, Hello. Victor.
No, they I don't know. Victor, Victor keeps dropping off, Bill. Okay, he, he's having a hard time with his cell phone, I gather. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Bill. I enjoyed it. It was a really Thank good uh, presentation. You know, I just wanted to reiterate with what you kind of ended with, and that being uh, the enmity between the two seeds are evident today as well, you know? I mean, we've got the the Jewish version of Christianity, known as Judeo-Christian Christianity, you know, it's it's a modern-day John Hyrcanus, in a sense, you know, that it's going out and falsely converting all races to a bastardized form of Christianity, you know, and Herod is now today, you know, playing the part by the, or, you know, Herod is now today being played by the part of the group of Jews in the White House that have taken over the power of America through the money and through money and bribery, just the same as, you know, Herod did, you know, um, but, you know, the positive correlation that I could make is that, um, you know, just as Christ's body raised from the dead, you know, so shall we, the body of Christ be raised up from the ashes around us here in this mongerized, you know, world that we look, you know, that we find ourselves in. But it's just, it's just funny to see, you know, with looking at that history that you presented, how those roles are still being played out today in, in history, in our, in our lives. Well, well, right, because that, that's because people behave according to their, uh, their, their inherent spirit. That, that the spirit Paul tells us that we're born a physical seed and raised a spiritual seed. That to me means that the same DNA that produces our body produces our spirits. Where you see the body of a man with the image of God, you'll see the spirit in that man has the image of God, as long as he's not a bastard. Where you see the body of a bastard, you'll see the spirit of a bastard. Now, some bastards can act like very good people, and some white men can act like bad people, at times, there is no doubt. But generally, our race does very well and builds society and builds civilizations based upon fairness and justice and the rule of law. Generally, the bastard races and the non-white races destroy civilizations and can't live by the rule of law. They live by the law of the jungle. Right, and, and they've proven funny. that to us. Yeah, exactly, and they've proven themselves to be an evil race uh, time and time again throughout history within different settings, whatever it may be in, you know, in, in poverty and wealth. They've always proven themselves to be of an evil seed. Well, well the Jesuits had convinced the Catholics and, 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 and the kings that they should convert all the heathens to Christianity, and in that manner, they would be able to control the heathens. And that's where it all started. There was no attempt to convert non-whites until the colonization period, when instead of pushing aside the non-white races, the, the Jesuits and, and the Jews of Europe got it in their heads that they could somehow convert and civilize these people so that they could profit from them. 
so that they could use them as useful idiots and as slaves. So they tried to Christianize the Negro slaves in the South so that they could better, so that they would be better suited to, to um, be, be better slaves in society and produce more. Well, well, it didn't work. Look at Philadelphia. Look at Newark. Look at Richmond. Look at Atlanta. All those once beautiful cities are now destroyed. It's very obvious that we could not civilize the slaves, not even with Christianity. They are not his sheep. They don't have the capability to hear his word because they just don't have that spirit in their genetics that God bestowed upon the white race. And they never yeah. will have it. Yeah, I totally agree. And and with looking back at uh, early Catholicism, whenever they started going out to forcefully con- try to convert people to their religion, um, it's evident that it was all about money and control and power with just looking at how they twisted Scripture. And it's evident that they were twisting Scripture by how they were keeping Scripture from the commoners. Well, well, no doubt. that They actually, um, I, I forget the Pope already, I have it in my notes, but, but um, in the 12th century, if you read Bede, if you read the Venerable Bede, and, and he writes in the 8th century, and he explains how priests and, and the various monks are translating the books of Scripture, not only the Latin, but also the Greek, into the vernacular of the common people. Now, at the time, this is a great task, right? Because in Germany, every other valley had a different dialect. In Britain, every other town, every other hamlet and grove had a different dialect. And the languages were, were a lot more fractured than they are today. So, so you needed a lot, of translate, a lot of translating, right? I mean, basically, every bishop of every church and every little place had to get his own translation if he really wanted to bring the Bible to the vernacular of the people because there were so many different dialects. Well, well, Luther's Bible actually did a lot to unify the language of the Germans in a lot of respects, right? Except they will always have that high German, low German, the major difference. Well, well anyway, in the 8th century, it, the Bible was freely translated. By the 12th century, popes were outlawing the translation. Something changed in, in, um, in, in Rome, and Rome became much more tyrannical than it had been four centuries beforehand. By the, um, by the time of the De Medici's of Leo X and the Fifth Lateran Council, the Bible was banned altogether. Nobody could translate it, and, and people were only allowed to have certain parts parts of the Bible in the original language, the Psalter and, and things like that. So, so yes, they, 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 there was a huge shift in the paradigm of Romish Catholicism from the 8th century to the 12th century, and, and by the 15th, 16th century, it got much worse, right? And, and they were definitely tyrannical by that time uh, about the books of Scripture. Right. But yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting to see history repeat itself. It's really quite sad to see how we've got our modern day uh Hercanuses, you know, out there, um, trying to convert the the bastards and um you've got uh you know, the Herods now setting in uh, the White House. 
Well, well, right. It seems to me that Hyrcanus probably had some people in his court that that shouldn't that didn't belong there that were pushing him to do these things, and and he was a political opportunist. Maybe he was encouraged that he could increase his. The the Syrians, the yoke was broke from the Greeks, from from the Seleucids, the Greek rulers of Syria. And he was probably apparently trying to consolidate his own little empire and make himself some tax revenue and and, um, and, and have that going on. That's what it seems to me. And, and it's all evil. Yeah, you know, none of it's good. We're commanded to be separate. That, that means non-empirical. We, we should be anti-imperialists. Okay, if that's all, I'm going to close the program. If nobody else has called in, I, I guess um, that there's a lot of people here, but nobody has anything to say. I, I can't talk about this. Uh, I mean, I probably could, but I don't know if it would really be edifying to talk about whatever comes to my mind all night. So thank you, Aaron, and thank you, Nestor, for calling in. And it's a shame Victor's cell phone gave out on him. But this is Christogenia Saturdays, and this has been the Antichrist for Dummies. Thank you for listening, and good night. Praise Yahweh.